You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, my co-host Matt Williams and I go on an AWS adventure with Corey Quinn, the chief cloud economist at the Duckbill Group. You may have seen or heard some of his in-depth AWS content, including his last week in AWS newsletter and blog, Corey's podcast, Screaming in the Cloud, and the AWS Morning Brief, or his highly produced YouTube videos on the Last Week in AWS channel. Corey runs the Duckbill Group, a company of people focused on helping clients understand and manage their cloud spend. If I had to describe Corey in a sentence, He's a quick-thinking AWS expert who is one part cloud strategist and one part sarcasm. The inspiration for this show came from his blog series focused on all the ways to run containers on AWS, which is to say there's a lot. Dozens of ways, in fact, which I took as a testament to how containers have won the cloud as the primary way to package and deploy software to servers. Now, the hard part for us is to figure out which method we're going to choose for running those containers. We go on lots of tangents, but overall, it was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Corey Quinn. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Brett. Today is the 4th of May, so we're going to have to have a slightly different show because we've got to insert all the Star Wars things. I got Grogu hanging out with me. I'm wearing a shirt. It's a Star Wars thing. Trust me, it's fine. But let's just get to it, because this is going to be a fun episode. Welcome to the show, Corey. Uh, Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I have an ongoing love affair with the sound of my own voice, and any chance I get to indulge it, I'm there for it. Perfect. Well, that's what we're going to do here. And we've got Matt, my other wonderful co-host, who's a regular now, if you haven't figured that out for the last couple of months. If you're just listening to the podcast, that's a couple of months behind. Corey also, by the way, has a bunch of podcasts. In case you don't know who Corey is, he's on Twitter. I think that's his job, basically. Chief Twitter cloud guy. Basically, a, <laughs> I need a shit poster name. is generally how I shit tend to poster. think about it. It's yeah. a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like my Polywork profile is, what is it, thoughtleader.cloud. I need to get the whole shit posting domains into there as well, into the rotation somewhat soon. No, I fix AWS bills, and I historically speak in my first language spoken at home of sarcasm. So rounding things up in newsletter, Twitter, et cetera, format was fun for a while. Now Twitter is basically dying because it was bought by a giant man-child. So now we're sort of trying to figure out what's next. Blue Sky, which I pronounce Blueski, is it Mastodon? Is it something new we haven't found yet? I don't know. But until then, I'm just practicing all of my material on my young children. Yes, I'm a fan personally of the sarcasm, especially about the cloud, because sometimes it's like we've got to get out of our own head. Sometimes we're down a rabbit hole of how crazy this stuff can get and we don't even realize it. So whenever I need a breath of fresh air, I jump over to your tweets. And those are also below if anyone's curious, all of the links, they're all below in the description. So Matt is coming from Seattle. Corey is coming from San Francisco. I'm coming from Virginia. So we're all in North America today. But 
we Matt and I often talk about conferences that we're going to. Corey, do you have? I mean, are you able to actually be released from Twitter and go to a physical meeting like conference? Oh, yeah. It was just at RSA, which is always fun and exciting if you're in the market to buy a firewall and absolutely nothing else. Although this year it seemed like it was all about big data sovereignty and understanding what PII lurks within the hearts of men slash your data. But that was also down the street. It's like, oh, we'll cover your travel to RSA. It's like, really? You're going to cover my bus fare? Amazing. But... Yeah, I spend a fair bit of time going back and forth. I'll be at the DC and New York uh, AWS summits coming up soon. Skipping reinforced due to a prior commitment on the other side of the planet. Yeah. Do you ever attend any of like the KubeCons or any of the cloud native stuff or anything like that? I'm pretty sure there's still that whole shoot to kill order in sight whenever I wind up showing up in person at those things. I hosted the Cube years ago once at KubeCon mm-hmm. Barcelona, which was my Ooh. first and last time to Spain. But it was really an interesting scenario just because it was an ecosystem that I didn't fully understand. And now several years later, I don't even slightly understand. So that was entertaining. It was great talking to people who are very passionate about things that in many cases they can't quite articulate, but that's okay. We work in tech. So you're one of the few I feel like in tech that has actually, like your videos are professionally done. You have a team behind this. Tell me a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes for like a, a reinvent retrospective or something like that, which you typically will do. Sure. There are things that I'm good at and there are things that I'm not good at. My primary skill, as you can see in the video, is wearing a suit. But <laughs> by and large, everything that isn't doesn't need to be me probably shouldn't be because I am ADHD personified. I will, to give an easy example, record a podcast episode with someone and left to my own devices, that file will sit on my disc for the next six months before I am prodded into handing it off to someone else. So I have basically automated everything that I am bad at into being someone else's problem. So we have people who are good at, you know, aiming the camera, which I feel is like better than I was as a kid at holding the flashlight. My, my dad made it very clear I sucked at that. And then it was the rest of it just turns into other people doing things that they're great at and empowering me to make it look effortless on some level. It, I'm surrounded by great people. And the fact that they are able to turn me into something people actually want to hear is nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> yeah. The last week in AWS, that's what you want to look up. That's just one of the things Corey does. So he also has a podcast or a blog. And one of the topics that we're going to end up talking about today at some point, because this is the container show, essentially, the word Docker is in the title, mostly nowadays for search. (laughs) The search algorithm loves the word Docker. So if you make it the container show, it's almost like you're guaranteed to get zero, zero people. But they'll think it's a Tupperware party online. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. The, in fact, the container store was at a DockerCon one time, and it was a little too meta for me. So the AWS was not the first to jump onto the container bandwagon like a decade ago, I don't think. They almost seemed like reluctant with Kubernetes as well. They kind of felt like they took their time with that. We were talking before the show. So you have this post that, that this is kind of the first, my first experience in you discussing containers, because you discuss lots of AWS and cloud stuff. But you had this title, The 17 Ways to Run Containers on AWS. And the first thing I thought was, well, that's made up. There's, there can't be 17 ways on AWS to run containers. Like, that sounds ridiculous. I'm a huge fan of containers, but how many ways do you really need on a cloud to run it? And then you wrote this other post called 17 More Ways to Run Containers on AWS. And we were talking before the show that you're coming up with a list for possibly a third round. So I need one more service stop? release, and I have the third installment of 17. When does it stop? I don't know. 
ask someone in Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know that definitely one of your repeating themes is AWS continues to pump out products as long as they can find a small team of people to come up with an idea. It might compete with their own products, but they'll still come out with one. So how many of these do you actually need? In fairness, there's a bit of absurdity behind it. One thing I will give AWS credit for is that they aren't doing this just so some random jackhole product manager can get promoted, usually. It's a, there are customer needs that these things meet. Every time they announce one of these things, they wind up having some customer come on stage and talk about the painful business problem that it solved for them, which is impossible not to respect on some level, because then it's instead of making fun of the big company that's building these things that, well, that's not for me, therefore it's ridiculous. No, there are other people's use cases that I don't have myself. There's constraints and context I don't have. And sure, they're not all home run services, but at the same time, they definitely solve problems for someone. And that's not nothing. I just think that when you take half a step back and look at the sheer variety of different things that can run containers, especially since you start to view that as a packaging format more than anything else, that's what really turns into, I I think, something that just looks a little ridiculous. I mean, on some level, all it really takes to be funny and make fun of AWS effectively is repeat exactly what they said, but louder and slower. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a lot of us, I mean, everyone I talk to that's actually an engineer, an implementer of AWS technologies, we kind of all stop once we've found the first thing that works. So there's not a habit of us constantly all like suddenly learning the latest thing from reInvent, unless you're maybe there. But even if you're there, you're getting a very small subset of what's going on. Well, that's the secret, Brett. My code never works. <laughs> that's why I keep going and learning all these new things. It's got to yeah. be the underlying platform, right? It's a poor craftsman and also me who blame their tools. Yeah, the the first way, obviously, that I was running containers on AWS was like EC2 instances with Docker manually installed. And I still yes. see people doing that, but I'm always recommending to them, you know, if you're using a cloud, use the cloud. I'm not a fan of using the bare minimum of a cloud simply so that someday you might be able to switch clouds with a slight ease to it because you're not using anything proprietary in that cloud. I'm more of a fan of like, just use the cloud, use all their services, stop questioning it. What is your advice? Do you generally tell your customers anything similar to that or am I way off? It echoes exactly. It's a multi-cloud is is the worst practice was one example that I wound up writing years ago. And the reason behind that is that when you're trying to hit this, the lowest common denominator of every cloud provider, you're having to re-implement a bunch of stuff constantly and still baking in unknown dependencies in practice. Like, oh, I want to be able to move to other cloud providers simultaneously to avoid single points of failure. And congratulations, you know, just added three more single points of failure. So you're exposed to everyone's (laughs) outages. People say, well, what about, what if Amazon competes with you? the hell do you mean if? Their product strategy is yes. If you can't make peace with that, which is fine given the context some folks have, great. Don't work with them. Pick a different provider, whoever that happens to be. But go all in. Yeah. Okay. That said, different workloads occasionally need to live in multiple places. If you're an observability company, you need to have something listening where your customers are. Meet people where they are. But there's, those are certain workloads, not everything that you're building everywhere. Best workload lives in different places. From that perspective, everyone's multi-cloud. I run a lot of my infrastructure on AWS for obvious reasons, but I keep my code on GitHub, which is a Microsoft property, because I'm not actively nuts. <laughs> we have code commit. Yeah, I have a goldfish. That's not going to help me much either. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a fan uh, as well of the code 
I don't know what you want to call it. The code storage and automation tooling out of AWS is always, to me, it seems like it's bare minimum. They did it once. and What's fun is that I use it. G Suite as well. And instead of the Amazon offerings, one Amazon employee once said, oh, well, we don't have any offerings in that space. Like, well, I'm sure the work docs and work mail team would love to hear you say that out loud to them. Like, wait, that's real? Yeah. We've long since crossed a Rubicon where I can convincingly make fun of AWS services that don't exist to AWS employees, and they won't call me out on it. Yeah. Yeah. That I can see how they would be nervous that maybe they'd forgot. Right, what are we up to now? Do you have do you have like a running count on your wall of like, does it go ding every time a new service is announced? <laughs> this is the problem because it depends on how you define service. Is it something that's billable? Because not all services cost. I mean, I feel like that they really regret not charging per IAM call one of these days. But you've also got services and then you have features that should be services because at AWS, whether something is a service or a feature is determined by how charismatic and ambitious the product owner is. Sometimes it really hits like IOT and then a bunch of words after it. Same with SageMaker, same with Systems Manager. I mean, there are so many Systems Manager services that have the word manager in their name, like Systems Manager, Session Manager. It's like it, you have all these managers reporting to another manager. It should be Systems Director, but it's not getting promoted to what it should be titled, probably because it's a woman in tech. I think you have, don't you have a video on this? You, you have a, what's the difference between a feature and a product at AWS rant, I think. I feel like I've watched this, so. I I might have. I, I make offhanded comments to it from time to time. History rhymes, but it's, I don't, honestly, I don't remember the things I say, which is going to be a real problem when someone tries to hold me accountable for it one of these days. Yeah, it's only forever on the internet is what I tell guests. Like, right before we go live, I'm always like, don't worry, this is just forever on the internet. You're fine. People say that, but counterpoint, what's the oldest file you've got on your computer? <laughs> for me, it's like 2013 or so, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. I had a data loss incident once upon a time. Oh, so that's the thing, right? It's the, the oldest file is the your last data loss? On some level, yeah. What really got me thinking about this recently was we've seen the LastPass breach where at some where it started off with like, there's no indication followed by there's some indication. And like every week it got worse for about two months. Right. Like, and you expect the next one to be like, yeah, and it turns out then they broke into your home and stole all your things. Like it's <laughs> great, but I migrated off of LastPass in 2017, but I yeah. also didn't rotate a few hundred passwords at the time. So this seemed like a good time as any to spend an <laughs> afternoon doing that. I was astounded both by the sheer number of things that no longer exist from even less than a decade ago oh, on the right. internet, while also seeing stuff that I was using in the 90s that's still there. Yeah. Like my Amazon.com account. I can still buy things on Amazon.com. Did you know that they sell things on the web store now? It's like there, there's that log, so the login date, because I, I have to look at the dates of creation of the passwords. And like sometimes it'll say like created 2016 or whatever. And I'll realize that if I go back far enough, well, I wasn't using a password manager. So I don't actually know how old that login yeah. really is. But you're right. I can actually tell how old the account is by which email address I was using when I created it. Right. Yep. Although I've moved a lot of them over the years as I keep up with it, but I did some checking back before they'd killed their, their ability to export previous order stuff on Amazon. My first Amazon order was, in fact, a DVD box set of at least The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode One. But I forget if it was part of the th like all three at once or I got it as it came out, but it was the late 90s. I bought the Star Wars trilogy, the, the original, four, five, six, like five times, I think. Because, you know, it was VHS, then it was VHS, you know, you didn't buy them separate, you bought them as a box, then you bought them as THX edition, and then it came out in DVD, and then it was DVD limited edition or something, and then it was Blu-ray, and I had to buy them each time, and that was, pro so I, if I went back to my original, I would, it was probably either that or, well, 
I don't know. Totally. Now streaming on Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm still well, the dumb guy that has the stack 90s, of the internet then was scary. And in yeah. those in the 90s, when Amazon first launched, it was first books. And okay, great. But I went to Borders constantly and buying books on the internet. I don't know. It'll never catch on. And then they got into CDs and I wasn't really into, into that and all. And movies, I'm not much of a movie buff, but Star Wars is not just a movie. It's an experience, a lifestyle, a religion, and a reason that people will immediately find something else to do when you start talking to them about it. Well, not the three of us. We made sure, for those on the audio podcast, that all three of us were wearing Star Wars-related swag. And so we have the X-Wing, we have Grogu. I also have a Grogu. So evidently, I guess there's two Grogu's. Mine is oh, yeah. 3D printed Grogu. Printed. That's the way to do it, too. Yeah, yours is way, yeah. yours costs a lot less, I, I imagine, than mine. But mine makes well, sounds and moves. Well, unless you've a 3D printer in. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Well, I mean, technically, you hit something hard enough, anything will make sound and move. <laughs> my dog is intimidated. My dog is about the same size as Grogu, and he, he's very intimidated by the sounds of Grogu. So we've got Vader in the middle. Okay. We've got X-Wing on the side. I've got Luke's home on, on my shirt, which I realized after I put it on, I was like, no one's going to see this. They're just going to see like a little spot, and they're going to think that I spilled something on my shirt. But that's all. There's no new Star Wars movies, so there's nothing really else for us to talk about Star Wars. I know I for those that are coming to the show and seeing like the logo and the thumbnail of all that, of the lightsaber and stuff. Like we're not going to do anything fancy. We're just making up a reason to talk. So may the fourth <laughs> be with you all. And you know, I have friends going to Star Wars comedy night tonight. I'm not able to make it, but I am interested interested in exactly what Star Wars comedy night is. Maybe it's Jar Jar Binks. Just yeah. constantly playing that. It feels odious already. I don't know. Because yeah. like, there's a limited subset of jokes there that are hackneyed and worn. It's hard to come up with original jokes about something that has been overanalyzed to death mm. on some right. level. Yeah. What was it? Was there was Family Guy. Was it Blue? What was the name of that episode? Anyway, Family Guy. They could just play Family Guy and Robot Chicken. And I would put the specials for Star Wars. And I would be happy with that. They don't actually have to do stand-up. But supposedly it's actual stand-up. So I'll, I'll hear from my neighbors on when they report back on whether it was worth attending. Back to AWS. So if I just ran through some of these container ways that you run containers, you've got a huge list here. For the audience that is actually here for not just our wit and our banter, but also maybe some advice... Are there any of these that, these ways to run containers that you don't advise or that you do advise? Is that, Do you have a preference? Well, some of them I was stretching a little bit and they're ludicrous. Don't actually yeah. do that. Like in the one that I haven't released yet that's coming up, I wound up complaining on Twitter at one point about how it was impossible for me to get, I think it was AppRunner working. And I posted a link to a public ECR repo that just was not working. And of course, Amazonians jump in to fix it. And they do, and it spins up a web server that has a troll face captioned with way 16 to run an, a container in AWS, trick an Amazon employee into running it for you. And well played, well played was basically the way that went out. Don't do that in production. Production. That doesn't seem to go super well. But I did register Kubernetes the easy and it points to the ECS landing page. I'm a fan <laughs> of that. I think that it is, if you're not doing resume driven development and just want to orchestrate containers quickly and easily, it's hard to beat ECS. Yeah, and it's the original. But the um, world is moving toward Kubernetes. I accept that. Yeah, well, and I think one of the challenges too is that you can't. There's nowhere else you can run ECS. I don't think I've seen anyone come out with like an EC, like a local ECS or like anything that's sort of a, a way for you to run it somewhere else. Not that we need it. I'm just, it's one of those things where it's exclusively. ECS in one place. Anywhere is a service that AWS has put out. 
Really? And the fact that you've never heard of that tells me something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do go down the rabbit hole. I mean, I have a Docker Swarm and a Kubernetes course. So I'm, I try to be a little agnostic on orchestrators, but I never made an ECS course. So that's part of, partly my fail. Before I started this place, I want to say 2014, 2015, I gave a talk that started off as a lightning talk called Heresy in the Church of Docker. And it turned into a full talk with like, hey, you want to give this at ContainerCon? But back before it was called ContainerCon, it was... Sure, but we want you to give the full version. And inside internal voice, like, there's a full version. But what came out of my mouth was absolutely. And it was fun. It talked about like a true story about a boss I had in 2009 who started a new job, was trying to lose weight, had started mixing Slim Fast and coffee. He just started his job and like was, he would wind up having a great time with it. And then one morning, like he's a weekend, I hear shuka, shuka, shuka. And I pop my head over the wall and like there's this chocolate blast radius ring like throughout his entire cubicle, like cubicle days. That's how long ago this was. And it just he looked like the most forlorn, sad, muddy puppy you've ever seen. And it was like when he left when I left that company a year later, that ring was still there in some ways. And it's a great story. And you can tell it in really interesting ways. But what's the point? I mean, it's just the tale of some guy who didn't understand how his container might fail in production and there's the ham-fisted metaphor it's now the docker talk so that it turned into a list of all these problems you have running containers back in the days of docker and that talk didn't age super well as it shouldn't with most talks about technological shortcomings because kubernetes yeah. solves most of them sure it introduces an order of magnitude more problems at least but that's a separate issue yeah higher levels of abstraction higher levels of problems yeah yeah, I was in the room at DockerCon, I think it was DockerCon 2016 when they announced Swarm, and ECS was, I don't know, like a year old maybe then? I kept trying to remember what year it came out. But I remember walking over immediately to the AWS booth because up until that moment, we, you know, our options were really ECS, Mesos, I think was still a thing. And we were at the time, Kubernetes was pretty young, so it was still considered the risky and advanced version of running orchestration. And I remember walking up to the ECS people and saying, oh, you're going to have Swarm simplicity or you're going to replace ECS with Swarm. And of course, you know, at the time they didn't, they were just as surprised as the rest of us because Docker loved to like keep it secret. They were doing old school, old school open source right, where you don't so actually tell anyone. Like, hey, pantsing someone that we work with on the, in the middle of the keynote surprise announcement. That's our freaking job. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great. Like that's why the expo hall used to be AWS Red Wedding. It's gotten better at that on some level. I want to be very clear. Like they no longer completely blindside partners. Usually. Yeah, usually. Yeah, I've never actually, I don't know even know why I went up to the AWS booth. I guess maybe because I thought that they would, I think I had maybe assumed. Maybe they have free credit codes or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, it was more like why I, I wasn't trying to troll them. I'm like, what was I doing? And I think what it was, was I had actually assumed they knew that this was going to happen, that Docker was going to release their own orchestration. And they didn't know. And that's when I was like, Ooh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that. I should walk away. I should walk away. So if you had a new client come in, do you see, because you focus on AWS bills, and so maybe we should talk for a minute about that. What do you see people spending money on with containers that you can pick at? Is, is Kubernetes typically a huge burn on their bill? That's what's fun. So I believe firmly that cost and architecture in cloud are the same thing. That, like, I'm not, I come from more, much more of a tech background than I do a finance one. 
But what's odd is that it's challenging from the bill to figure out whether they're running Kubernetes or not. Because from the infrastructure provider perspective, it's just a bunch of EC2 instances that have an application that does some really weird stuff. There's a bunch of services out there that talk about bin packing and how to get the right size instances and the rest. But the big driver that I see that really screws the bill has been the fact that Kubernetes generally has no sense of zone affinity. So it's going to just as easily talk to something that is across the, a different yeah. AZ boundary, which is two cents a gigabyte, instead of the thing sitting right next to it that's free. So, And there's nothing out there that I've seen that really addresses tackling those costs, either from a control or an analysis perspective. And like sometimes you want it to do that as a fallback, great plan, as opposed to right. the site falling over usually. But as far as the common case, maybe not so much. Like, and you see that manifest itself in weird ways in terms of ratios. Like you're getting a petabyte a month in of traffic, but why are you sending 50 petabytes back and forth? At that point, right. could you just like store two copies and everyone saves a lot more money? Yeah, that's a... Uh... I feel like that's a problem that I've seen a couple of people come up with solutions, but they were always pretty bespoke. And this is actually a great question for They're bespoke, for they're overwrought in some cases. Yeah. And yeah. It, there's no global solution for this. I want to be very clear. Yeah. the I'm just sitting here thinking that there was a moment when we were all first learning orchestration, probably in that same timeline, like 20, somewhere 2015, 2017, where we all actually assumed that sort of affinity aware traffic, I guess, or zone aware traffic or local, especially when we started bundling all this stuff on multiple hosts. And we assumed that if there was multiple replicas of a thing, that it would always just go to the local host. It it seemed logical, but very quickly, I remember when we were, when we were, when I was back, when I was creating our first courses on a lot of this stuff, like none of it did that. None of it, it was all meant to be well, we're traffic agnostic, so we'll you got five replicas, we'll be equal to all five replicas. So I'm curious, actually, to anyone, if you've actually come up with your own way of relegating traffic or somehow controlling traffic. I have seen maybe a few ingress providers or something that with proxies that maybe does it based on labels, but I'm... It's not, it's not in my head right now. So anyway, it's just that it's an interesting problem, but you're saying, okay, so one, you can't even, it's hard to know on a bill because by default, Kubernetes doesn't actually cost you anything to have Kubernetes, right? Is it because they run- Their control plane of an EKS is something like 70 bucks a month or so per cluster. And that's great and all, but I promise by the time that people bring me in for a bespoke consulting engagement, we are- that is so far beyond the pale. It's like one of the early Jeff Barr cost control blog posts where they talk about using Redshift to analyze your AWS bill. And it's like, just doing the numbers on this, if you leave that thing on all the time, like most people do, great, that's minimum $750 a month. Like there's a, like the idea, I wound up doing a, a meme of that at one point, like my $70 AWS bill is a bowl of cereal and someone eating it, a kid eating it with a spoon bigger than he is, like Redshift. Yeah, like that, that's effectively the way to tackle it. Right. There's a point of scale where at some point it starts to, yeah. And again, I'm talking common case. There are very yeah. often scenarios where, oh yeah, like you think the control plane is expensive? Absolutely not. Yeah. Next thing I know, I'll find a customer that has 8,000 different Kubernetes cluster with no <laughs> workers in them. And okay, that starts to add up a little bit. So beyond Kubernetes, so there's all these other services that run containers and those, I feel like some of them at least you're going to know, like LightSail or I'm trying to think of things that are specifically what's the one is it i always forget well lambda's obviously now it takes containers as a package format yeah i don't even know about copilot is this really a thing yes it is it's a command line utility that replaced the ecs cli specifically because Mm. it wound up 
being you know, too used and people are, oh, we're going to come up with a different tool for this. It's it does a lot of the golden path stuff, right? Like, oh, you're starting something greenfield. Here's how you do it at the cost in this particular case of, well, I've built something. Can I move it into Copilot? No. At least the last time I looked at it, that may have changed, but we can dream. Right. Those are all real, by the way. I haven't made up fake services to see who catches me on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like you're saying. It's like some of these, I just assume they're a thing because I've never used them. I mean, I know the one I know probably the most, you know, I, what I like about some of these services like AppRunner is that I largely think that even though I'm a trainer of Docker and Kubernetes and my livelihood is based on the, the, like, the fact that these things are so complex, I really want and advocate for people to try to drive these, to use these higher level services that remove the abstraction, the complexities of infrastructure. It's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, look at running a web server. In the 90s, it required an intimate knowledge of GCC compiler flags in the better part of a week. Then RPM or DEB came out. And okay, that makes it a little easier. And then you have something on top of that like YUM or apt. And then with uh, configuration management or a puppet or whatnot, it was ensure installed. And then it became Docker run. And these days it's check a box on the web page on S3 and you now have a web server out and running. Things don't get harder with time. They get easier. And right now, I think with the container ecosystem, we're very clearly staring at a too complex to be sustainable environment. It Run Kubernetes as a best practice is all well and good until you're trying to tell it to a small company based somewhere that where it's, they're running a factory or whatnot, and, and IT is not the core of what they do. And, oh, in order to run this system responsibly, you need a team of people making a quarter million bucks a year each. Good luck. It's because computers break. It's what they do. So you've got to be have a plan, be ready to go when it breaks in new and exciting ways. And if you don't like that story, then, well, running boring technology is often the right path forward. I migrated off a bunch of serverless stuff for my website to freaking WordPress because that is well understood by lots of people. So I can right. find people who are good at that pretty easily versus I'm the only person on the planet who knows how I built this monstrosity. <laughs> That's, yeah, I don't want to be critical path. Yeah, and that's something that I think I talk a lot of. We talk a little bit about the, on this show every other week is sort of just an open Q and A. It's a little bit like this, but we actually just let the conversation be driven by chat. Yeah, speaking of, just asked whether you can run Docker Desktop on top of EC2 in Windows in uh, on AWS. Absolutely, you can. You can run Amazon Workspaces as well. Spin up the thing and do whatever you need to do. I run Docker myself on top of EC2 boxes all the time. Just albeit not in Windows. It's effectively viewed as a computer that lives somewhere else that someone else runs which is great. That's the whole point of EC2. Like They solved in one way what Kubernetes has solved for a bunch of the rest of us in different ways, which is you have now isolated workloads from specific machine failures, which is great. Yeah. That good changed the world yeah. for an awful lot of shops. Yeah. Good question. Bare metal? No, you need bare metal when you're doing very weird esoteric virtualization centric stuff usually, or in-depth in depth access to things that require very specific processor functionality exposed that isn't normally exposed. It's kind of fun. Well, the only thing I can think of that I'm th is that whatever instance you're running, it has to be able to support nested virtualization because Docker Desktop uses WSL2 on Windows. So I know for me on yes. Azure, because I get free Azure stuff, so I use that sometimes for my Windows machine specifically, that I know I have to make sure that I enable or use the ones that are support nested virtualization. So I don't know if that's, yeah. Yeah, does that work? Does that require bare metal on top of EC2? I don't play in the Hyper-V space. I have run a KVM Quemu on top of EC2 relatively easily. So I'm curious as far as where it starts and where it stops. Yeah, I would say just 
there's got to, I've not, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't even remember if I've ever run EC2 instances with Windows desktop on them, but it just, all I know is it needs to support nested virtualization, which if I Googled it, we would probably have an answer in, you know, 30 seconds, but I think that's just the only requirement. Yeah. Which is why, like, yeah. I have a good question. I have a, I'd love to know. I should find that out because spreading misinformation is something I should be doing intentionally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not about, we're not about the accidental misinformation. We're all about it on purpose. The thing that I do, and I'm assuming this is the same thing on EWEC2, is yeah, I just spin up a Windows 11 instance whenever I need it on Azure, and Docker Desktop works great. Yeah. But I have to make sure that I. If you're running your own Hyper-V, you actually have to turn it on. It needs, Hyper-V requires VMX support in the processor, and that in turn requires one of their metal instances. I'm wrong. Thank you. I appreciate the correction on that. Yeah, that won't work on EC2. Yeah, so bare metal. Unless, and as far as I know, every Docker desktop edition, whether it's, even if it's on Linux desktop, actually requires virtualization because Docker desktop on Linux desktop is not the same as Docker engine on Linux desktop. Docker desktop that always uses I don't run. I don't run the Linux desktop because quite frankly, I have more self-respect than that. I'm sure that's not going to irritate anyone. <laughs> well, even my Linux desktop friends will tell me you probably shouldn't do this. Like they, one of them has yeah, a- I have a, couple, I have a couple headless things running around the house that, that actually do have front ends on them and desktop environments that are on Linux, but also running on Raspberry Pis. It's like, it feels like, I don't know, the hamster is going to get mighty tired running on that thing if I start trying to do virtualization on top of that. All right, so I, my pick is App Runner. I'm just going to get this back to this, this yeah. silly little blog post here. I say silly because I don't know all these things, so I need you to help me out. The App Runner, that's my choice because that's the one I know. If you had a customer coming Co-pilot to you- wraps App Runner as well, for example. These things okay. are all interconnected on some level. Yeah. So on the second blog post, are there any of these that you would actually recommend to one of your customers? Because I, I don't think I've heard of any, well, VMware Cloud on AWS, I've heard of that, but Nitro. Enclaves? I would recommend almost all of them, except for the, the ludicrous stuff in certain contexts for certain use cases. These, that's the point of it. These things do not exist in isolation. They are, they're there for a reason. Nimble Studio, for example, is freaking awesome. If you want to have a, basically a blender environment that runs in a hosted cloud environment for you that you can wind up having a bunch of artists collaborate on. That's great. If you're using that to run your web app on, with Kubernetes on it, wrong tool for the job. It's, right. and that's what most of these things are. But if someone, if someone says, okay, we're trying to build something new on containers, what do you recommend? The first answer is always, well, what your team is already familiar with. That yeah. If you were to basically tell me even now that I have until morning to get a, a get a website up, I'd probably reach instinctively for a traditional EC2 instance, do a three-tier architecture, because I've done those for years. I know how they work. I know how they break. And I can right. get there pretty quickly. It's... And that's, it's well understood. Is it flashy, exciting? No. Is it something that I would potentially run with more time and thought? Of course not. But it is something that is, that is very well respected, that solves an awful lot of problems for folks. And knowing where something is and how it fails in a deterministic way, that's valuable. Yeah. But it so much comes down to requirements. Yeah. And that's part of the challenge here. You know, I've been using AWS since the early days. I'd like to think that I know a thing or two about it. And if someone made me actually go through this list and tell them which one is the right one for them, I would have to do some studying. It would be, I'd have to give them the consultant answer just because I don't actually know so many of these tools just because I just haven't had a client that's running them. The correct consultant's answer is I don't know, but I'll find out because the first time you're convincingly wrong, no one trusts you ever again. It's uh, there's no, there's no shame in not knowing something or being wrong as long as you're quick to correct it. 
an interesting question a couple of minutes ago. Specifically, what would I suggest if a fresher wanted to get a role of DevOps or SRE on remote or in office? What path would I suggest to go about that? And that ties into what I'm talking about here, specifically because first, the road that I walked is long since closed. So I don't want to give the boomer style advice of, oh, just take your resume and uh, door to print out a nice paper, go door to door, firm handshake, you'll have a job by sundown. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I'm not living in the past in that sense. But the problem is, is that there is really not such a thing as a junior SRE, because what yeah. people want to hear from ops folks is the last time I saw this, this is how we fixed it. As far as how I would approach it, I think that the cloud resume challenge that Forrest Brazil does is phenomenal. Uh, there's a discord that's active on that. Mm -hmm. I periodically mentor folks in that program just because it's they ask. And it's neat watching people figure out what they want to do with their careers. I mean, the big problem is that when you get to a certain point of professional success in your career, it's you got to send the elevator back down. It's I've never understood this idea of I got mine. So screw you. But this does come down to what service do I suggest people recommend? The boring one, the thing that you already know how to use, that your team is up to speed on. Because when you're building something new, you have a limited amount of innovation tokens you can spend on something. I don't think you want to be early adopter of new technology as one of those things. Like we're building an expense reporting app, so we're going to build our own database system. That We did that once at a job I worked at 10 years ago. And I think it was the wrong move. It's an expense reporting app. This is this is pretty basic stuff. You don't need to reinvent the universe for this. So this really resonates with the show because this is kind of the strategy we've been, we get a lot of new students that come in through my courses. We have such a short half-life of new technology that like the cycle that we see on Twitter and the blogs and whatnot, it's always focused on the new. It's rarely focused on something old or something that hasn't changed. Right. Like, for example, I'm going to bring up Swarm again, not because I'm it's just a good example in this case. It still exists. It's still a feature of Docker. It actually had new features released this year, but no one talks about it. So people assume that even though there's all these commits and things happening, that's dead because there's not a thousand blog entries a month coming out from everybody that's and I'm also very guilty of this. So I'm critical of myself of the fact that we always want to share what's new and we don't repeat the old boring ways to people. And that does a disservice for the young whether it's young and physically or the young in the, in their career in this, because I mean, I'm still doing Terraform and Ansible the same way I was doing it five plus years ago. I don't talk about it, but it doesn't mean I'm not using it every single day. So this is a good topic. Like this is a problem. Yeah, it's important. It's a, the boring stuff doesn't get the attention, but it powers the world. The majority of global AWS men remains on EC2, but on EC2. it doesn't get a lot of love during keynotes because it's not interesting to talk about virtual machines anymore. They want to talk about the higher level stuff they're trying to sell. Remember, keynotes are aspirational sales pitches. There's mm -hmm. conferenceware as a, as a service, which is kind of a thing. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's particularly common in vendor conferences. What's funny is if you go to a vendor conference, when we used to have DockerCons reinvents, I used to attend all the Microsoft conferences, and then you go to something like, you know, a Lin any Linux Foundation event, the keynotes can actually be pretty boring <laughs> because they're not trying. Well, I'm not, I shouldn't say that. They're the people that pay to be in the keynote to sell you something. But for the rest of it, the rest of it, like the project updates and stuff like that, it's actually kind of a ho-hum event. And you're, they're not surprising us with, here's the greatest, newest thing that you didn't hear about until five seconds ago. And I do, as a human, I miss that. But as an engineer, I actually appreciate that, that they don't constantly spring us with new things. 
and they support the things that they release. It would be a much different story if they were, well, we didn't see the adoption numbers on this third way to run container, so we're turning it off in two weeks. That you need to be able to trust this stuff is going to be there if you expect customers to build on it. So they've they've nailed that. Yeah. In fact, maybe that's part of the challenge here is that I honestly expected at some point for them to sort of EOL ECS only because they had so many other ways to run containers. ECS felt like it was, again, it's the thing that no one else is running. They're the, they're, it's their particular utility. It's still low level to me. Like you're still managing EC2 instances unless you do Fargate. So I honestly- I see a lot of it in the wild. Uh, yeah, ECS. Yeah, so I wondered about yeah. that because I honestly just it's assumed exciting, it was going to die on the but line. it's there. Yeah. No, and I, I asked that question at some point just because I was curious. Like I, I have good lines of communication with these folks and I don't think I'm breaking any confidences when I say that. So you planning on killing ECS anytime soon resulted in basically the equivalent of a spit take when someone isn't drinking something. And mm, it's, right. no, we are not going to kill one of the foundational services that we use. It's, uh, it's my understanding that they use a lot of it internally as well to power things. Mm -hmm. It is in many ways a better approach for getting an application up and running on AWS than Kubernetes. Now, that's not always the design requirement for a lot of shops, so it's not a perfect fit in some areas right. and its capabilities continue to evolve. But it, I'm a big fan of the service. I like an awful lot of what it does. And it's not just my fanboyism here saying that's why they yeah, yeah, kill yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to kill it. Yeah, let's be clear on that. Have there been any services that AWS has dropped? I mean, we, which they tend not to, but are there any services that AWS has had that they've decided this isn't working out and we're going to just drop it? There are eight of them, and they've all been killed in basically different ways. Wow. That's a very precise answer. <laughs> Import-export <laughs> jobs used to be they would mail hard drives back and forth. That's been replaced by Snowball Edge devices and Snowball. Snow Cone yep. devices. RDS on VMware was announced, and even the blog post now, just memory hole link to VMware on AWS. And they wound up winding down Sumerian, which is now being transitioned to some open source JavaScript framework. They are rolling back, I believe it was WorkLink. They're now they're in the process of turning that off. Last time I checked online. And a couple of, and of course, the Deep Lens, which is basically mm -hmm. an Alexa that can stare at you because that got replaced by the Deep Racer, which can now follow you into the bathroom as well. And now they're buying iRobot so they can have the robot so we can do it while screaming at you. And that completes the trifecta. That's, uh, that's a shockingly the next short movie, list. Star Wars, New Jedi Order. All right. Yeah. Sorry, that's important a, breaking news here. That's important. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> we're, we're, also, we're also breaking Star Wars news while we're talking about containers on AWS. Assuming we're serving double duty here. I kind of skipped over this. Thoughts on workloads inside the container driving the answer on where the container should run. Case Always. Kind of, I mean, that, those are the constraints yeah. of the application. It's a, I need this thing to run basically anywhere that I can get close to the end user. Think gaming companies where the latency is everything. Then great. You want that to be something that is as bare simple and as widely supported anywhere as possible. In other cases, it's a, it's always going to live in AWS because its entire workload is going to be tied to in, intrinsically linked to AWS foundational primitives that aren't anywhere else. Great. You don't need to worry about multi-cloud portability or anything else. But counter counterpoint, we're also running Kubernetes on everything for all of our stuff. But for this workload, we're going to take something completely different so that the SRE teams don't have any idea what they're looking at. Usually a bad plan, unless there's yeah. a compelling reason otherwise. All of it are there are trade-offs in every direction you go into. But what is this workload actually doing is usually a good question to ask. Step one, like, what are the rules around this thing? I like it. I, I My strategy generally is 
finding the service that helps you avoid using SSH. So if like, yes, that's me, called becoming a manager. Right. Right. The, the goal for me, for any new team that if, well, I rarely walk into a greenfield situation, but if I do, and it has happened a few times, or if they're doing maybe a migration or something from two containers from something legacy monolith or whatever, I usually am trying to get them out of the job of SSHing into a server. If they have to, if they can SSH into an instance, it immediately to me brings in this whole pile of management, you know, updates, EC2 replacements, like swapping out servers, you know, Terraform and Ansible combos that it's, there's just a whole lot of complexity there that I feel like we can and avoid. This is the trade-off of containers where you'd better damn, you better be damn sure that your telemetry game is on point mm. because you need to trace down an error now that was thrown on a system that stopped existing 20 minutes ago. And okay. So you'd better, if you don't have observability stories around that into making sure you have the data you need to diagnose that you're in for a bad day. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're new to containers, it always seems like a little bit of a magic or a black box. And if you're only looking at logs and that's your only mechanism for, because you, because you haven't done anything with observability or metrics inside your app, then that's when I usually find people that are frustrated and that they don't have a shell and they can't get into a machine. It's because they don't have those kind of, they don't have that right tooling for observability. Yeah, I agree with you. Got a question. What do you suggest when regarding to building up experience and should I build hands-on projects with tools and cloud or should I go for certifications? What do you think? <laughs> I have a bias on this one specifically because I have always found the common case approach did not work for me. Life is what happens to me instead of what I planned on. So I found that building something interesting that I can point at and talk about is the right answer in that as opposed to certifications, because a certification when you're a hiring manager basically states that, okay, someone is vaguely conversant about this technology. When I say RDS, I won't have to stop and define what it is, a relational database service for those of you who don't work with AWS, which is also known as being happy and having something fulfilling in your lives. So good for you. You make better choices than I do. But then the idea of having something that you've built that you can talk about with a portfolio site, for example, which is the entire premise of the cloud resume challenge that Forrest Brazil put out, is you build something that does a whole bunch of things, soup to nuts, and you have to learn a whole bunch of different areas in order to get it out the door and running. Well, now you have something you can point at and talk to and see and have a conversation with people about this stuff. And that becomes a great interview topic all on its own. Now, the trick is, is that you often want to go around the usual intake form because HR can't hire you. They can only say no. They're gatekeepers. So they have automatic systems that look for certain keywords in the resume and discount them. If you can find your way to the hiring manager, the right answer is almost any, in almost any scenario, is you want to be very sure that you're talking to someone who is empowered to say yes, because then they can turn to HR and yeah, do the usual intake bullshit dance you're going to do and then bring them in for an interview. It's a different story. LinkedIn is great for that. Talking to people in your network is phenomenal. It's, oh, people love to tell stories about what they're working on. They love to talk about what they're doing. And getting a cup of coffee with someone is some of the cheapest investment you can ever make in your career. Do it by all means. So it worked for me. Results yeah. may vary if you don't look, you know, like this. But let's be very clear. It's yeah. the idea of doing things through personal relationships is always going to be on point. Is this what you're talking? This is actually the first time I've heard of this. So we're the cloud resume mm -hmm. challenge. Is this what you're talking about? Yes. It turned out as a fun thing that he wanted to putting out there. There are free ways to do it. He has a book on it as well, which is not horribly expensive. There's a community behind it too. It's well worth the experience. Yeah. Full disclosure, I did have an article that I believe is in the book on how to interview for a job with a portfolio site. 
Yeah, cloudresumechallenge.dev. I am a big fan when I talk to people that are trying to get into DevOps or in the, to a cloud career about, you know, GitHub is your resume and people will Google you during, if you even make it that far in the it interview can process. Be. Yeah. 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 There's a point in your career, and you want it to happen earlier rather than later, where you go from being a commodity to being talent, where I need six people to work the phones here and do this thing and read a script. That's commodity. Whereas I need a person with this particular skill set to solve this type of problem. That's where you become talent and people start seeking you out. But you're always going to need a piece of paper that says you know what you're doing. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's certifications. If, after you work a little bit, it becomes your resume. And at some point, it can become things like, you know, the first page of Google when people search for your name, if you become notable in your space, which is certainly not required for a fulfilling career. But it also, it turns out that a resume that just says two words on it, Google me, is very uncompelling as far as do I want to work with this person? <laughs> I'm just imagining doing that for a subtext. Don't you know who I am, you jackass? Yeah, it doesn't go well. You're not going to read this, just Google me. I mean, who was it? Like the ZipRecruiter? CEO or somebody that was quoted as saying, you know, like a resume is only for the robots that you have to get past in order to get to a human or something like that. I feel like that's a quote from some interview. <laughs> being good at your job in almost every case and being good at writing resumes are orthogonal skill sets. Same with interviews as well. Whereas we go and do technical challenges and job interviews that we only ever do when we're interviewing for other jobs. Interviewing is a skill like any other. I'm a big believer in interviewing for other jobs every six months or so just to see what the market is doing and learning how things work out. I can't do it now because when you own and run a company and you start interviewing for jobs <laughs> elsewhere, it sends a message to both your staff and the industry that's the not really what you want to be sending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matt, do you have any thoughts on this topic of certifications, experience, res uh, portfolio sites, GitHub resumes? I generally feel that certifications are garbage. <laughs> I used to think that way. I don't anymore. I want to be very oh, okay. clear on this because, yeah. yeah, for people who've been around the block a few times, yeah, it's one of those. No one has ever asked me whether I have a certification in right. AWS space yeah. with the single exception of trying to get into the certified lounge. I have a couple of baseline certifications. Uh, I get yeah. a new one every time it lapses, one lapses, just so it's basically a lounge pass with a really <laughs> weird entrance questionnaire. We're fine. But then that was, but that's how I view it. But early in your career, yeah. people care about that. It's also yeah, very yeah. valuable if you're, let's say, a giant insurance company. You're hiring 5,000 mm -hmm. new grad engineers today, or you're migrating to the cloud and you have a bunch of those engineers now. How do you get people skilled up in cloud and how do you track where everyone is on that progression? Formal certification programs are great for that particular use case. But again, it feels like it's very much lined with the commodity side of it. I also, and people, someone else said, yeah, I agree with Matt, that the, that it's certifications are garbage. I used to say those sorts of things. The problem is, is that for some people, it is a very viable path oh, yeah. out of whatever yeah. they happen to be doing themselves. And I don't want to, I don't want to make them feel less than for having gone down sure. that path. The yeah. challenge too, is that certifications have a natural shelf life where when something comes out and it's like the first time we're doing a certification in this space, it's really interesting in the early days, but in time it becomes brain dumped into question banks and the rest, and it just becomes a trivia exercise that doesn't really demonstrate actual insight into these things. Like which one of these cloud formation terms is not a real sub function? It's who gives a shit is the right answer, but it's not one of the <laughs> fill in bubbles because it's Wow, if I don't know some answer some trivia question I'm in the middle of building something, it's at my fingertips when I'm using the internet. It's not a matter of how good are you at this trivia that this thing you haven't used in five years. No thanks. 
Yeah, there's always a part of a particular certification that no matter how good you are at the product, there's always that 10, 20 percent, whatever it is that you've never needed to use. And it's going to be on the test and you're going to have to learn it just for the test and then you're going to forget it. And there are definitely some benefits to having certifications, like not only for you, but also for your employer. Sometimes there are levels that you can get into as a partner if you have 10 people that are certified. I remember getting CISSP when I was at Microsoft because there was some benefit to the company if we had, you know, a thousand CISSPs. And the same thing at Datadog. I mean, if there were a certain number of people with this, then we got bumped up to the next level with some organization. Yeah. There are an awful lot of, yeah, there are an awful lot of stories of folks who are great at taking certifications, but don't actually know how to apply it in the real world. I like talking to folks who are like, oh, I have 25 certifications. Like that, that's kind of impressive in its own right. But when do you have time to do actual work if you're maintaining all of those? It's yeah. it's a hard problem to solve for. And of course, partnerships are a separate story. You must have as many, at least this many certified employees to be this tier of partner. Great. Right. Because if I work in AWS bills and contract negotiation. I very intentionally have no partnerships with any vendor in this space because of the perception for or reality of conflicts of interest. I charge customers a flat rate and that's the end of it. It's a very straightforward approach. I'm not giving advice that benefits me at their expense at that point. And everyone's a lot happier for it. Like, well, how do you get, how do we get you to recommend our product? Cool. Just simply be amazing. And I will do that for free. Yeah, that's work. Can we just pay you instead? It's like, well, my authenticity might be for sale exactly once, but that's going to have a disturbing number of commas in that price tag. Cause I can only sell out once. No one's offered it yet. <laughs> the, I think the summary we're saying back to your question is if you lack an experience, certifications are really certifications and proving yourself on the internet through portfolio sites or GitHub profiles is really the only option you have, in my opinion. That's why like a lot of people will take my courses right out of, because they're Udemy and a lot of times companies or universities will have access to Udemy courses. And they'll take those as they get out of university in order to fill that gap because university doesn't typically, most don't teach Docker and Kubernetes. So, you know, you're not going to learn Terraform skills necessarily, or even how to write YAML in, in university. But but you need those skills somehow. And to me, that fills the gap. But to be clear, I started in the 90s. I used certifications as a gap for experience, and I had no university. I went straight military, then to the public sector, and and I needed those, I needed to fill that gap. So I got, I was like what Corey was describing. I got 30 certifications, and then I quit. Like no more certifications for me. I don't care what they put out. I'm not getting them because no one's asking anymore. And I don't think they make me a better engineer. So here's the career advice that I would take. And I think this applies universally. Ignore the next job. What's the job after that? What do you want to be doing? Then go find people who have that job and talk to them about what it is they wish they'd known when they were starting out back in your position. And in some cases, depending on what you want to do, your path is going to become clear. And should I get a certification? Absolutely. Not worth it for this job. Not necessary. Great. Same story with degrees. I have an eighth grade education because I don't have the attention span to do useless homework stuff, but that's great. And that it worked out for me, but it made my 20s very interesting and challenging in the career context. Talking to people who are trying to, who are down that path will tell you what's necessary. If I want to be a surgeon, for example, in my next act, I've got a few years of school ahead of me before I can wind <laughs> up doing that because being an unlicensed surgeon is a felony. Whereas I want to go and run Kubernetes in production, that just requires a couple poor decisions and you're good to go. Yeah. The number of people that can put cloud technologies on their resume and the number of people 
that can actually run them efficiently and intelligently is a different number. And I think that, like you're saying, that there's something more than certifications we all need, but I want to be clear, don't skip certifications if you don't have experience. Like there's really not anything else that's going to help you make sure get that, that the job. Time ex- yeah. And also make sure the time investment and the money investment are worth it. Don't mm-hmm. do things because you believe is what you're supposed to be doing. We built an entire generation on go to college. You'll always have a job waiting for you afterwards. Then you wind up with people $120,000 in, de- in debt for a degree that isn't serving them in any meaningful way because they're still struggling to find work early on in their career. So I do not envy people who are currently entering the workforce. It's a tough time. And I don't know what the right path is, but I do know that talking to people who've recently gone down those paths and seeing what they wish they'd done differently is always worthwhile. Worst case, you wind up learning, oh, that might not be for me or the conversations are done. Best case, maybe they'll refer you to someone who would hire you to do that thing. Yeah. So when we get back to the container conversation real quick for AWS, so have you ever talked to someone who's on EKS or any Kubernetes solution on AWS, have you talked them out of it? I'm curious if you've ever seen someone leave Kubernetes. I have, but I haven't talked them out of it, to be clear. like People make their own decisions. They decide their own level of involvement. People are going to be doing things in a variety of different ways. And migrating is always a challenge. It is going to be painful and difficult for someone to get from whatever they're doing now to something else. Greenfield's easy. I mean, you start to drive an architecture of how I could run any given arbitrary application on a whiteboard. Junior employees can do that relatively easily. The problem Mm -hmm. is most places can't throw everything away, start over from scratch, and then take the site down for 18 months while they build the stuff. And cost, counterintuitively, is very rarely the reason people are going to do a complete refactor of something. But cost considerations are going to factor in while they're thinking of their next generation approach. I have, for example, seen a number of people go from containers to full-on serverless with Lambda in many cases. There are also times where there have been this, the challenge of running this thing responsibly have, has proven too much. Customers are then instead going to decide, you know, I'm actually okay with running a bunch of EC2 instances and deploying that because we know how the world works in that space. They're not wrong. Kubernetes is an interesting problem. It solves a a few very large scale problems, but not every problem looks like that. You've already got a cluster throwing another workload on. It's not a big deal, but that zero to one experience can be a little intimidating. Yeah, I was just curious because I think maybe once I was able to convince an engineer, I'm going to call them solo DevOps, like one person's responsible for infrastructure for a DevOps. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the DevOps. I think I was able to successfully talk about. Well, they they weren't using Fargate. They were using Kubernetes e, e, raw EKS. Like they were just they were managing EC2 EC2 instances. They were well, they weren't actually. That was the part probably the problem that they weren't patching. They weren't replacing. Instances. They were mismanaging EC2 instances. There we go. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever done that. And I saw the burden, right? And so I was trying to talk them into App Runner or. I mean, they were kind of stuck on AWS at the time, but, you know, like Google Cloud Run, if they were on Google, and I always forget the one on Azure, that's roughly the equivalent. All the work that I do with my clients is advisory only. I write no production code because I am a goddamn menace, and that's fine. But what that means is that I tell them what I would do in their situation. I'll write proof of concept code occasionally, but that's about as far as it goes. I don't have a vested stake in a customer making any particular decision down the path. All I can do is identify costs, trade-offs, and benefits of doing Mm. these things. But remember, a company deciding we're going to have our team work to migrate this thing to or from Kubernetes, that's a team that's instead going to be doing that instead of something that 
moves the material needle on their business in any real right. sense, like gets their next rate round of funding or goes public or their next uh, quarterly earnings report where they want it to be. It's a it's one of those problems where there's saying yes to something means saying no to a bunch of other things. If this has to be the most painful and expensive problem for us to focus on that right now, and that outweighs the best opportunity we could be focusing on right now. And in some cases, it makes sense and others it doesn't. But believe it or not, there's this misperception we have in our in our culture that people who run companies are idiots because they make dumb decisions and it's obvious it wouldn't work and it doesn't work out. It's This is generally untrue. Hindsight makes things very clear. And you always have to wonder when you see a company doing something brain dead, it's what were the constraints? What were the context behind those decisions? Because if you can look at something and in 15 seconds say, oh, I bet it's stupid because of X, Y, and Z. I promise you, someone in the meeting where they pitched the idea got those questions within 10 seconds because these people generally on point with a lot of this stuff. And it's an industry where they are they're operating it and are experts in. Like when you talk, hear about someone's business they've been doing for 10 years and your first response after two seconds of thought is to make a suggestion about what they could do differently. The odds right. are terrific that they've yeah. thought of. Like people have, One of the favorite things people love to tell me is you should charge a percentage of savings. And I finally have gone around the bend on that one. And my response is, like, holy shit, I never thought of that. I could make so much money. It doesn't work for a variety of excellent reasons. But yeah. people like to put a couple of seconds of thought in and assume that these things are, that somehow they've figured out the thing that no one else has. It's untrue that you're, it's unlikely that you're type, that type of prodigy. So there's right, a... Right. So the question I always wonder is when I see something, someone doing something ridiculous, what were the forces that drove this? Why did they do this? Why did they feel this was the best option? What were they surprised by the outcome on? And was it actually a failure on some level too? Remember, what is it? Success has a thousand followers, failure is none. That's a polite way of saying that you can look at LinkedIn and figure out the success of a project by how many people claim credit for it. <laughs> I like that. Metric. I don't hear a whole lot of people saying, oh, yeah, I was at Google. I was responsible for killing Google Reader. There is one product manager, I'm sure, who wakes up every day terrified the internet's going to find out who they are. And I don't want us to find out who they are because I want them to have that fear for the rest of their lives. Right. <laughs> don't let us find you. I think it's still too soon for you to bring up Reader. It's a, it's, I'm still having a. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's long gone. So we could talk forever. I feel a need to add something. Early on, early on in this call, I think Corey mentioned that there were no new jokes about Star Wars. And so one of the things I always try to do is try to somehow wrap ChatGPT into the conversation. So I asked ChatGPT, come up with 10 funny jokes about Star Wars. And were this any is of what them? it came up with. <laughs> well, why did the movies come out four, five, six, one, two, three? Because in charge of scheduling, Yoda was. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and they get worse. Bad joke. And they got it. And so I, you know, usually with ChatGPT, you have to like, you know, you gave me the answer. It wasn't very good. Give me another answer. Right. Here's what's wrong with it. So I said, no, I wanted funny jokes. Can you come up with 10 funnier jokes? Um, People and, tell uh, me that all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, the, about the best we got was, what was it? What do you call a droid that loves taking the scenic route? R2 detour. Yeah, that it was pretty bad. So so yeah, I that, that's all I chat GPG. Maybe it would be better at puns. Oh, yeah. I wonder if it would be better at puns. puns. Star Wars Star puns, Wars yes. puns. He wound up asking for ten Star Wars puns, hoping that one of them would make him crack a smile, but unfortunately, no pun intended. <laughs> mm. Is that one free? 
Oh, that's oh, yeah. going to go. Remember, I used to tell a lot of puns and then I had kids and they became dad jokes instead. The difference mm-hmm. between a pun and a dad joke is when the punchline becomes apparent. Oh, snap. I honestly became a new I'm I'm I am an I am now a bigger fan of puns because of The Last of Us. I don't know if you saw that show, but she walked around with a pun. No, I have not. The whole show that the teenager ha- because you know it's the end of the world and what book is left is a book full of puns so she walks around reading them all the time in the show and i don't know if it's a real book or if they made it up for the show but it, i actually laughed at some of them create a musical call when it just it comes to puns what is it it's a play on words when it comes to puns <laughs> you're good at this. yoda best wow that's chat gpt okay yeah that's yeah. pretty good that, <laughs> i believe you'll find it's pronounced chat jippity i am not <laughs> that is the petty hill i'm going to die on Chat Jippity. I like it. Chat oh, yeah. yeah, that's good. Well, in case you didn't know, Corey does things on the internet, and I just want to mention at least a few of them. So you can basically find Last Week in AWS everywhere. It's a newsletter, right? It's a pod- Is it in a podcast? It's a, it's a YouTube. It is a podcast. It is a, it is a newsletter. It is basically a breakfast cereal at this point. Yeah. It is... I gather all the news from Amazon's cloud ecosystem and then gently and lovingly make fun of it because of the very obvious personality defects that are part and parcel of what I am. And it's fun. I guess it's obvious to say that comes out weekly. Two and a half times a week where I used to do long form essays every week and decided I didn't want to kill myself every week the same way. So I do a roundup of AWS news on Monday. Every other Wednesday, I've got secure. I've got a big, uh, the essay nonsense. And then on Thursdays, it's the security news from the previous week. Mm. Things you actually need to care about. If you things, if you have to care about security, but the word security is not in your job title, that's for you. Nice. Well, you can get them there and all places that you can find media and podcasts and videos and stuff like that. So you, once you start getting in his ecosystem, you will eventually just be surrounded by Corey. I see him all day on Twitter. I don't know. I don't know what else you do. Like you clearly produce content for a living and, and that's that's your job. Not this other fake thing. Remember, I have a consultancy builder. too. People are always surprised <laughs> when I show up and do some of the work. They're like, wait, you actually know how to do things? We thought you were just a talking head. Don't you, don't you have I a know, microphone? I'm as surprised as anyone. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for being here. Maybe someday you'll grace us with your presence again, because this is an unending topic. We could talk about containers and AWS forever or anything just tech related. But if you want to find them on, just look up Last Week in AWS on YouTube and everywhere else you can find audio and video stuff. So thanks again, Corey. Matt, as always, thank you again for being here. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.